Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn, or if it's digital, you can tap your way to Luke chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke uh, chapter 2. And I, I want to start this new series by talking about something that a lot of the church is kind of built, I think, sometimes can be built to, to shield Christians from. It's a reality that we try to hide ourselves from and, and often merciful pastors maybe try to hide people from. But the more you live, the more, more true it becomes. Um, here's something Jesus said. It's not in Luke. It's going to actually, I realize this in the first sermon. I said Luke 2, and that's really where we're spending our time, but it takes me a minute to get there. But in John chapter 16, Jesus, he's talking to his guys. It's the, the disciples, and, and Judas has already left. He's talking to his 11 guys. He said, I've said these things to you, and this is after talking for a while. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. That sounds really nice. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I hope this verse has entered your life at some point before now, and I hope that it's provided some really sweet moments, some encouraging moments for you. It has for me. But if you read this verse and all you get is encouragement, I think you've missed one of the main parts of it. Because he does say that, you know, in him you can have peace, and he does say to take courage that he's overcome the world. But right in the middle, he promises that we're going to have tribulation. Now, that's a crazy word. We only say that in church, maybe. ESV guys should have done better than that. But they're going to have difficulties, pain. I don't know if you've ever been promised to have less pain in your life and that Jesus is going to make everything rosy. Well, well if you've heard that promise, that's misleading at best. Because what Jesus just promised courage and peace and pain. We just did a whole series where we talked about like, what are the kind of mission statement words of Hope Church? And we use three. We say abide, love, multiply. Be close to the Lord. That's his word. Abide. It's another ESV word. We probably could have found a better one, but it says it a lot in John. And we like that, that if you read John, you would hear that word a lot. And so okay, abide. Abide means that you have a close relationship to the Lord. Love Special commands in Scripture about the way Christians care for other Christians. The way the church cares for one another. There are many commands in the New Testament about how we care for one another well. So that's its own special category. But then multiply. We're not just here to hang. We're here to believe and, and review a truth that the whole world needs to hear and then believe if they're going to be put in a right relationship with God. And that means that it's our job to tell the whole world the good news about who Jesus is. That's multiply, we say that word. Well, if you're going to do that last one, multiply, then what Jesus said about how you're going to have tribulation, it especially applies to you. Here's what I mean by that. So David and I have gotten this weird sort of association. You know, Pavlov, the guy that like rang a bell and then would feed his dogs and he got to a point where he could just ring a bell and his dogs would slobber. It was the same thing in the office. 
You know, uh, every time Jim would restart the computer, he'd give Dwight an Altoid. You're not supposed to watch TV. I'm sure Christians don't watch those shows, but it's a thing that some of you may have encountered before coming to Christ. Yeah, it, and then every time he would restart the computer, Dwight, mm, well, his mouth would taste bad because he was in, whatever. In church planting, David and I have learned to associate pain with growth. I don't like this. I don't like pain. I still don't. But it's a silver lining that Rachel and I or that David and I will say to each other, when things get really bad, we'll go, but maybe this is like about to be something good. Because <laughs> every time Hope Church has taken a step forward, somebody has really had to suffer for it. We went and met with a friend of ours named Bobby Wood. He's a church planner and pastor north of here. And he had the same kind of conversation. We're sitting down, we're eating lunch together. We were at a Chipotle because Bobby is really built. He's gigantic. And he wanted to go to Chipotle because they'll sell you like a bucket of grilled chicken. And so he could just be eating like high protein, low fat the whole time we were talking. And the reason he's so built is because we're talking highs and lows. And he was saying that one of the ways he deals with some of those like angsty, angry kind of overwhelming emotions in ministry is that he lifts. He works out a lot. Like, well, yeah, that shows you how hard ministry is that this guy is like a brick house, like he's gigantic. He's like, I can punch people or work out. So, you know. I'm huge. And it's like, yeah, well, that's not a direct quote. I'm kind of filling in some of the, he's actually a really soft-spoken, humble guy, but he's just, because that's what ministry is. If you want to build the church, it's contested. The Bible describes war. If you want to take territory in a war, you will be contested. Bullets will fly. Blood will flow. If you want to build the kingdom of God, you stand with the Holy Spirit inside you, with the word of God to speak, and with the enemy arrayed against you. Man, listen to Paul. He gives us a good example. Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed when you read the New Testament, but Paul's like all over the place. He's writing books. He's in the books. Why? Well, if he's an example, look what it says in 1 Thessalonians 2. This is Paul writing to a church, and he said, Though he had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, the town over there, as you know, we, we still, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. This is just one of the letters. This is just him telling a little bit about what's going on. Well, what's going on? Well, he had suffered and been treated shamefully in that town, but by God's grace, he continued to have boldness to declare the gospel of God to others in this other town, Thessalonica, in the midst of much conflict. So what's the thing that happens every time he goes to share? Conflict and suffering. Again, I don't know that every Christian has to experience that at every moment of their life, but I'm telling you that if you love people and you attempt to do kingdom work, a common denominator, something I have seen every single time, is pain, is hardship, tribulation. Well, what do we do with that? Well, what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you how biblically God brings a lot of opposite things together. He brings together the idea that it's possible to feel pain and yet still experience joy. The name of this sermon series is Leap for Joy. <laughs> It'd be so fun if somebody actually did that at some point. They're like, hey, 
Woo! You know, like they did some kind of leaping for joy. Okay, how are we going to leap for joy? We're only going to do it if we're honest about the real situation, if we're honest about just how bad things can feel. In this world, you're not going to have maybe a lot of happiness. One pastor said, you're only, if you're a parent, you're only ever as happy as your least happy child. Uh-oh, you know, some of you got like 10 kids. You'll never be happy. You got like, <laughs> one of them is going to be miserable all the time. And if that's your new ceiling, like it's a low, it's a low bar. Well, we're, that's what we're talking about. You're only going to be as happy as the people that you love. And that's not exactly true. And who knows what codependency, well, I don't know. I'm just saying, if you love in this world, you're going to suffer. So how do you feel pain and yet experience joy? How do those opposites go together? Well, in Christianity, thematically, there's a lot of opposites that go together. If we sin, meaning if we do something that a holy God says not to do, then how do we as sinners ever get to be around a holy God? The whole point of Christianity is humans and God coming back together. That means that sin and holiness are somehow going to interact. How do opposites go together? The Christian life is supposed to include a pursuit of godliness. We receive a perfection in Christ. That's, that's not something that we earn. And yet, being his, we are supposed to try to be like him. Well, if you've ever tried to quit something, it's not easy. And I don't know that anybody would describe walking away from like an addiction as peaceful Maybe there's some point years later where you start to feel a great deal of peace, but in the process, oh my gosh, hang out with some brothers and sisters that have gone through addiction. In the process, how do you pursue holiness and yet feel peace? How do you pursue church planting and yet feel peace? How do these opposites go together? Well, in Christianity, we want to be really realistic about how things are. If anybody ever told you that there was going to be a really happy life, like I said, I think that is misleading at best. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again, he said, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning if there is no resurrection, if this life is all you get, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? Well, hey, man, you know, if Christianity is not true, I'm just still so glad that I've lived this life in Christ. Like it's, it's, it's the journey is its own reward. Can you understand that Paul is saying no to that? That through conflict, shame, and all of his pain, he would say no to that. I think the same thing. I am in no way Paul, but if my job is being involved with Hope Church and none of this is real... I can tell you, I would have a different job. <laughs> you guys are great. Obviously, this is just, you know, rainbows all the time. But I would have a different job. It's not easy. And sometimes we fall into sort of this other thing where we say, okay, well, because it's not easy and because my efforts have just not really seemed to bear a lot of fruit, I'm going to hunker. I'm just going to, like, try to get safe and stable and, like, repeatable. And I'm just going to live a really small life. And I'm available, you know, if somebody asks me about the hope that I have within me, I'll share the gospel with them. But until that happens, I'm just going to keep kind of taking care of me. And you make your circle really small. Well, I don't know. 
That same passage I was talking about in, in Philippians is that same book. In that place, Paul was instructing them about the second coming of Christ because some of those people thought that Jesus would be coming back like any day now. And so they had given up on work and they had like let all their obligations go away because the end of the world's like in 10 minutes. So why not just like look at the sky? And so he wrote to instruct them on that. But in instructing them on that, he also instructed them on how that maybe some people wanted that to be true because they just didn't want to work. <laughs> so he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Speak a strong word to the people that are just lazy and still. Encourage the faint-hearted. Somebody's just depressed. Encourage that person. Help the weak. A lot of people just don't know what they're doing. They need somebody to mentor them. They don't have skills. Okay, I'm going to help the weak and then be patient with them all. This is a great verse for parenting. <laughs> it's a great verse for counseling. But it's also a verse all of us need in Christianity. I think a lot of us get real idle. And why? Well, maybe because we're a little bit faint-hearted and maybe because we're weak. Well, listen, if that's you, and this morning you're thinking about how to be involved again with the mission that God's given you in Christ Jesus, I want to pursue joy with you. And I want to do it by looking through the Gospel of Luke at the places where he talks about joy. And when you know it, the first one is what we talk about at Christmas a lot. Christmas, you sing joy to the world. Why? Well, because of Luke 2. In Luke, we get this extended passage talking a lot about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. So in Christmas time, if you ever go to a church at Christmas time, you'll often hear Luke. You didn't at Hope Church, but, you know, better pastor next year. We'll see what happens. But a lot of times you'll hear from the Gospel of Luke around Christmas time because in Luke chapter 2, we get this other description, this, this time where it describes God in his grace announcing the birth of Jesus to some shepherds in a field. Now, this is in the Gospel of Luke because it happened. But a lot of stuff actually happened that Luke, knowing people that had seen all this stuff and being a, a very careful historian, had to edit. He had to say to himself, Jesus did all of these things. Now, knowing that I, I'm commissioned to write this because I want people to know this Jesus... I'm going to select the things that happen that are going to most helpfully present who Jesus is, what his ministry was about, and how they're supposed to respond. So he gave us this story in particular because it tells us quite a bit about what it's like to be humanity. In this story, it says in Luke chapter 8, at the same region there were shepherds, people who take care of sheep, and they're out in the field watching over their flock by night. Now, this setting, I think, is instructive. It's instructive because it's dark. I think that matters. A light has come in Christ, meaning that before that, there was a, a darkness. There's certainly a darkness, Old Covenant to New. There's certainly a darkness 400 years between the last prophet and the coming of the Christ. But, but when you think about this world, you can think about darkness, these guys are out in a dark place, but they're also having to keep watch over their flock by night. I think that's also instructive about the Christian life. If you live this life, you live in a dark world, but you also live in a world that's dangerous. Why are they keeping watch over their flock? Well, I think for two reasons. One, sheep can get themselves into a lot of trouble. 
They can walk right off of stuff. They can, I don't know, I'm not really a shepherd. That They can do a lot of things that screws themselves up. Apparently sheep as an animal, not very intelligent. They need us. They've gotten to that point. They need us. So the shepherds have to watch the sheep for the sheep's sake. But they also have to watch the sheep because there are enemies around. There are wolves and there are thieves. There are things that will come and take the sheep from the shepherd if he is not actively watching. Well, can I tell you, that feels a lot like the Christian life. We live in a world where things are tricky, where things are going to go badly for you if you're not watching yourself and for others if you're not watching both them and the enemies that surround them. The scripture is clear that the enemy is like a lion. He's prowling around seeking whom he, will desire, uh, whom he can devour. The New Testament's really clear that there are false teachers talk, talking all kinds of things that sound gospelly. But when you scratch in, you get to penance. Or when you scratch in, you get to workspace salvation. Or when you scratch in, you get to something that really honors that teacher. Or when you get a little bit closer in, you realize that Jesus isn't there. That's something that tricks the sheep. If you're going to be a Christian and live in this world, you're going to have to be ready in the darkness to fight for sheep. You say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not talking about being a pastor. I'm talking about being a Christian who abides in the Lord and then loves somebody else. If you just love one other Christian, that's another Christian you have to be watching out for. By God's grace, you're going to learn to love lots and lots and lots of Christians. That's going to be lots of people that you should care enough to read Scripture and learn a little bit about it. So do they start going off the course a little bit? You can say, hey, man, let me ask you a question about that. Okay, it's a scary world, and these guys are living in a scary world. They're living in a dark place, having to watch over their flock at night. But not only, is it, not only is it a scary world, not only is there suffering or reasons not to maybe feel joyful because of our setting, it's also scary when you interact with the Lord. Because looking from the darkness, verse 9, it says, An angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So in contrast to the darkness of the night, we have the glory of the Lord that is this amazing bright light. It says, The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they are filled with great fear. Now, you can read it. You can see it's coming fear. But if you don't allow yourself to think that word, what would you expect their emotion to be? Maybe they would be ex excited because God's with them. Maybe they would be awed because God's with them. Maybe they would feel, I don't know, curiosity because, you know, it was night yesterday or right now, two seconds before. And now instead of night, the glory of God is shining around us. Well, maybe they felt those things in a little bit, in small quantities, but what they felt, the headline of what they felt was great fear. That's because they felt something of God's holiness in that moment. You look at the world and you see darkness and danger. But if you look at the Lord, is all you experience comfort? Well, eventually, if you understand the gospel, yes. But if you look at the Lord and just experience the Lord, the first thing you experience is holiness. Can I tell you, if you've not experienced fear when you've contemplated God, you haven't contemplated the God of Scripture. My kids, we finished our, like, you know, little kid Bible that we were reading through, and it's got all these different stories that are kind of rewritten by somebody to make it kind of more palatable for kids with good questions for parents to ask. It's a great resource. There's a lot of them. I'd love to tell you about them. We were looking for something next to keep going, you know, keep having our Bible time at night with the kids. And so Rachel found this book that was talking about the names of God by a lady named Sally Michael. 
And in this book, The Names of God, she gives one lesson on each of the different names that God has throughout the Old and New Testament. That book gave me nightmares. Seriously, I woke up. And I've been trying to keep up with, like, why I wake up at night. So I, like, journal a little bit. If I wake up in the middle of the night, what, what scared me? Why did I wake up like that? So I took notes on what that nightmare felt like. It was a nightmare about the holiness of God. Because we had been studying in the names of God. We had been studying how God is the creator. There's an otherness to the fact that he's creator and we're creature. That that's a barrier we won't cross. We were talking about the fact that God is self-existent. The way that he reveals himself to Moses is as Yahweh. I am that I am. He is, he is not dependent in any way. He is completely independent. Our existence is completely dependent upon him. His existence is in no way dependent upon us. And then the God who sees. He's not only out there in all of that magnificence. He's also got his eyes on you. Well, a loving mother having her eyes on you is a sweet thing. But the judge of the universe having his eyes on you is a terrifying thing. That's certainly what these guys felt. They felt fear. They stood before a holy God, and I think they felt shame. Now, you can just say, well, you know, if you turn the lights and scream uh, when I'm sitting in the darkness, I'll jump too. You know, like it's okay to feel a little nervous if you're watching sheep and the heavens open up and angels come down. I get that. But I think the emphasis in Scripture on a holy God being around a sinful people is on our experience of shame. That we know we can't stand before a holy God because we have sin. There's a great little book by a guy named Ned Welch called Shame Interrupted. And if you read Shame Interrupted, he talks about in Genesis 2 how God made Adam and Eve and they were not ashamed. Genesis 2, 25, at the very beginning of Scripture, when God made the first man and the first woman, he says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I am ashamed immediately when you reduce my clothing, even a little bit. I like all the way to the ankles, all the way to the wrists. I want to be completely covered. And yet Adam and Eve were completely uncovered, and yet were completely without shame. Well, yeah. You can say, well, obviously they would be. They came right out of the box, like perfectly sculpted by God, created in their maturity by God. It's like, uh, you know, Ken and Barbie. And they're like perfect, right? Like they're made Perfect. Adam and Eve were just right out of the box. Perfect. Of course, they're not ashamed. He could grate cheese on those abs. Like, he looked fantastic. Of course, he wasn't ashamed. But if you're smart and you continue reading, you understand that his shame had nothing to do with his physical appearance. His unashamed, or in Genesis 3, his shame had to do with his breaking of God's law. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sewed themselves clothing out of fig leaves. The reason they sewed themselves clothing is because they, they've broken God's law and they feel a disgusting feeling of shame that makes them want to hide. They now feel as though they are dirty. At an existential level, at, at a who-they-are level, they are something gross. And that the thing you should do with something gross is hide it. And so that's what they do. They put on clothing in order to hide. Well, Welch, as he's talking about this, he says, the fine beginning of Adam and Eve without shame doesn't last long. 
Soon, shame will cover absolutely everything. But don't worry. Keep listening because much more will happen. And he's right, you know, in the third chapter of Scripture, much more is going to happen. Cleansing, acceptance, and even honor will appear long before the story ends. And these will come with a surprising twist. What's the surprising twist? Well, look at what the angels say in Luke 2. The angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, the greatly afraid shepherds, he says. Fear not. Why? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So you want joy, guys. Here's the joy. What's the joy? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Oh, everything that he just said is beautiful and important. We don't have time to talk about David or the city of David or how this Savior kind of fits in with everything that's happened to this point. It's early enough in the year. Consider jumping into a reading plan that's going to help expose you to the Old Testament. But in this passage, and just what he's saying right here, he's saying you can feel joy. You can put away fear because there is this one, Christ the Lord, who has been born a Savior for you. Now, I, I don't know if you know anything about Christianity, but this is our headline news. This is what we exist to tell people. In fact, if you don't know this, we would say that you're not a Christian because being a Christian is not believing in God. You should believe in God if you're going to be a Christian, but that's not actually everything you need to believe. Believing in God, you also have to believe that God is a holy God and that your sin before him means that you've been separated from him. That's why we need a savior. We don't need a savior just from the enemy or just from the darkness or just from sickness. You got to go back up to the source. We need a savior because we have sinned before a holy God. It goes back to that opposite thing I was trying to talk about at the very beginning about how can sin and holiness be together? They can't. How can clean and unclean come together? They can't. Clean makes unclean clean or unclean makes clean unclean. Take a second. That was right. I said that right. <laughs> but they don't stay together without one or the other happening. The holiness of God does not allow sin to be present. It would eradicate us. So how do we stand before God as sinners while he is holy? Well, that's what Jesus has come to do. That's why Jesus is our Savior. He is the substitute. He is the one who, being holy, took on sin. So that being sinners, we can receive holiness. He is the one who left heaven that we can go to heaven. He is the one who endured hell so that we don't have to experience hell. We talk about this a lot. Again, the name is substitutionary atonement. It's like saying, you know, the upper room discourse. I don't know why anybody lets theologians name things. Substitutionary atonement is a very accurate description and a very difficult thing to understand. But all it means is that he took our sin on himself. He atoned for us so that, so that you can stand before a holy God and you go, no, I can't, I'm a sinner. And God goes, no, you're not. And you go, no, you know, really, I, I am. And he's like, no, I know you sinned. But I'm saying that Jesus has paid that sin. Our, our books show your account is clear. You have nothing more to pay before a holy God because your sin has been wiped away. That's why you should have great joy. That's why you should not have fear. 
Can I tell you that that doesn't mean that these guys are not going to really suffer? <laughs> it means that they, they can have joy knowing that they will be with the Lord. But between now and then, it, it's still going to be pretty heavy. Until, until then, it's still going to be pretty hard. The joy that we describe in the Christian life is this experience of knowing that something that will make everything okay is true, even if it hasn't yet taken away all the darkness. Here's what a writer named Matt Smith Thirst says. He's a guy that writes on DesiringGod.com. I actually really like a lot of the stuff he writes. He's great. He's just got a weird last name. But me too. But here's what he says. It may sound somewhat strange, but God is happy. Happier than the happiest person you've ever known. Who's the happiest person you've ever known? There's Richard Simmons in the 80s, and he seemed really happy. There's old ladies with cookies. They always seem really happy. Who's the happiest person you've ever known? God is happier than the happiest person you've ever known. Even before there was time, he was happy, infinitely happy with a within a triangle of love. For from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, the Trinity, delighted to share the joy of divinity with each other. The good news of the gospel is that because of what Christ has done, the happiness that exists in that Trinity can be overflowed. It can be experienced by you and me. So put it all together. <laughs> what do you do with this opposite thing? Well, there's something about being adult an adult that means that your brain can hold two things at the same time. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to say that I'm going to choose a lifestyle that includes and increases in suffering. And at the same time, I'm going to experience great joy. Now, we know that that's possible because of the gospel. But we also know that our hearts are faint. That staying in that kind of meat grinder is, is, can be difficult. You're going to need community support. You're going to need to have a close connection to the Lord so that you remember that joy in the midst of that pain. But can I tell you, there's another spiritual discipline that can help you here. There's a spiritual discipline that can bring together opposites, that can bring together the feeling of hunger and the feeling of being full at the same time. And it is, anybody through context clues? <laughs> Fasting. It's why it's been given to us. There's going to be a day when we won't fast. It says in Matthew 9, 14, the disciples of John came up to Jesus saying, so John the Baptist's disciples go up to Jesus and they say, hey, why are we fasting? The Pharisees even fast, but your disciples, they don't fast. And Jesus says to John's disciples, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's saying, right now I'm here. <laughs> it's heaven on earth for these 11, 12, 11, 12. They're having a great time because they're with me and they're not because they're proud and they don't understand what I'm here to do. But if they did, they would know they're with me. It's wedding at Cana every day. But at one point I'll be taken away. And they'll be in this kind of period where they know me and they love me, but they're not with me yet. And in that experience, they will fast. So, hey, that's you and that's me. If you believe in Christ and you say you're a Christian, that's us. 
you're invited into a discipline that for a short period of time, in a somewhat extreme way, in a very physical way, can help you to feel an experience of hunger that you can remedy. I mean, you can eat a granola bar. You can always pull the ripcord. It's not like suffering where sometimes things happen and you wish you could pull a ripcord, but it doesn't let up. But this is chosen suffering, and it's suffering for a moment. It's very controlled. But you experience that physical hunger, and as you're experiencing, you say, no, Lord, what I want is not food. It is food. (laughs) But I'm choosing to go without food because I have a deeper want. It's you. It's that you would work. It's that you would make your name great in that person's life. That you would do something amazing in my life. That you would help me to fight this sin that I just keep doing and you keep telling me is not part of your kingdom's ethics, that this is not how you want us to be. That's what suffering through fasting can kind of do. It can help you to grow in a lot of specific ways. It can help you to long for him. There's a psalm in in the old language they would say, as the deer panteth after water, so my soul longs for thee. Oh, it's beautiful. Has it ever been true of you? Have you panted for God? You know that you do, even if you don't feel it. Well, fasting can help you to bridge that gap. It can help you to experience a chosen physical hunger and associate that with a a believed spiritual hunger. It can help you to long for him. It can help you to subdue your desires. Saying no to something that you know is okay because you love the Lord and you want to, for a moment, do something that he's calling you to is a muscle that you can use in other places. You grow that muscle through fasting, then it's going to be a little bit easier to use that muscle the next time anger springs up. To use that muscle the next time lust presents an opportunity. To use that muscle with your tongue. When you're thinking about saying something gossipy or awful, all of a sudden, you've got a little bit more self-control. And like I was saying, it's a way for you to beg the Lord to work here and now. Another pastor, John Piper, we'll finish here. He says, might God not ordain that his fullest blessing will come to the church when we prevail in prayer with the intensity of fasting? That's what I think fasting is at heart. It's an intensification of prayer. It's a physical exclamation point at the end of the sentence. We hunger and thirst for you to come in power. It's a cry with your body. I really mean it, Lord. This much, I hunger for you. All right, so so what do we mean by that? Well, I would encourage you, unless you are medically prohibited, and a lot of people maybe fit in that camp. I don't know. Not a doctor. I have no idea. I know there are people that'll just pass out. They'll just die if they go without food for half an hour. I'm sure that's you too. But if that's not you, consider going without food for a period of time and replace that moment of eating with some time with the Lord. Now, if you'll consider doing that, we've got a month in February, we're going to think about it together and just kind of emphasize it. But it's a way for you to try to bring together these two ideas that you're going to suffer in this world, but that you can take heart because he's overcome the world, that that you're going to suffer, but you can suffer while experiencing great joy. And again, I mean, none of this is really available if you don't know the Lord. We're inviting Christians to take steps further, but, but we're also inviting people that don't know the Lord to say to themselves, do I feel shame before holy God? 
If so, can I, can I experience the forgiveness that's available through Christ? <laughs> We're going to talk about it every week. Please come back and hear more. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, if this morning you give us the grace to be invited uh, into spending time with people that don't know you, there's somebody in this room, Father, that's just still experiencing Christianity in kind of uh, an investigative way. Lord, will you help them to, to see you as you are and to choose you as their Lord and as their Savior? If you do that this morning, Father, will you give us the grace as believers who may know that person to, to connect with them and to celebrate with them? Father, but also for those that are Christians in the room this morning, I pray that you would give us the grace to say yes to the disciplines that you've commanded us to endure, to choose, and then eventually to enjoy, knowing that they will produce joy. They will engender joy in, in us. Lord, let us be a people who take everything that you have to give us, that don't leave money on the table just because it seems a little hard at first. And also, Father, please help us to be wise. Please help us to not see fasting as a way to do penance before you or fasting as a way to have pride before you. But instead, Father, let us see fasting as an opportunity to have more of what we love most, which is just you and an experience with you. We love you, sir. We pray that you would guide your church for your glory. In your holy name we pray, amen.